Welcome to the South Coast Christian Podcast. I'm Pastor Tom Westerfield. On behalf of myself and our entire staff, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope this message uplifts and encourages you this week. Um, I have something special to share with you today as we begin. Uh, this is really becoming an uh, uh, annual tradition. Uh, my oldest son, Evan, uh, he comes up with him and his wife, Ashley, for Christmas every year, and I've been inviting them for the last, I think, three years uh, for Evan to share a message with us on this Sunday. And, and he has a message that I believe will tie in uh, really well with our new year and even with my new series, Off the Grid. And uh, he's going to come up and share a word with you today. And I want you guys just to welcome him right there uh, from your couch or wherever you're at uh, online. Maybe you're in your kitchen or in your bedroom. I want you to welcome uh, Evan today as he comes up and shares God's word. Amen. Come on up, Evan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I need you. a hug before you leave. Fair so enough. There, this is my eldest son. Oh, kill it. <sighs> no son should have to stand on his tiptoes to hug his father, but that's, that's where I'm at in my life. What are you going to do? Uh, well, hey, South Coast, it's awesome. I've spoken uh, two messages this year, and one was to um, a bunch of cars, and today I'm speaking to a camera. So it's, it's a year for unique messages for sure. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Um, like my dad said, it's kind of just become an annual tradition. Um, I really look forward to it. I, I love uh, being able to come down and share with everyone. I'm going to be able to share with you guys about what is, what's really on my heart. Um, and today I want to talk about um, the book of Job. And it's interesting because all of this really started with, um, I, do, I do a podcast with one of the other pastors at the Grove, uh, that's the church I'm from, uh, named Aaron, and we, we did an episode on the book of Job, and I really, um, it just grabbed me in a new way. I've, I've read it a few times uh, throughout my life, um, but it's, it's just, you know, it did that thing that the Bible can do where all of a sudden you read something, it, it kind of sticks out to you as brand new, and so I kind of just became obsessed with it throughout the year. Um, and little did I know when that was happening that this year would kind of turn out to be the way that it is because the, the questions that Job wrestles through, questions of, you know, why, questions of suffering, why do things happen, um, what is God's answer to people as they suffer, are questions that are incredibly relevant to us today. And so I want to kind of not, not just talk about a section of Job, but really just give an overview of the entire book, the themes, um, and then what we can learn coming out of it. So to kind of start it off, I suppose, like in a, in a fairy tale way, um, once upon a time, there was a man named Job. And, and Job was incredibly wealthy. Um, and not wealthy in the way that we would reckon it today. It's not about gold or, or money or anything like that. But Job had a ton of land, and he had a ton of livestock to keep that land on. So when the Bible talks about his wealth, it says, you know, he has this many oxen and this many camels and this many donkeys and this many sheep and, and so on and so forth. Um, Job also had a wonderful family. He has 10 kids. Um, we don't know a ton about what's going on, but we know that uh, Job had incredibly close relationship with all of them. It says that he would offer sacrifices, not just for himself, um, but he'd offer it for his family. And he was so concerned for his kids, it's funny, that he would even offer sacrifices, like, just in case they sinned. Like, anytime they went out and did anything, he's like, hey, God, you know, just in case something happened, here's, here you go. Um, that's kind of what Job, Job would do. And most importantly, he loved God, and he turned away from evil. And in fact, 
He is described in the opening chapters of the book as the greatest of all the people of the East, which is incredibly high praise. Um, And all this is to set up that Job is a righteous man who is living his life extremely well. And then everything changed. In Job 1, 8 through 12, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And in in these verses, we get our first hint of what I'm going to call um, the lie of the book of Job. And it's not a lie that the book is telling to us as the audience, but rather it's a lie that almost every character in the book believes. And, And what they believe is that your morality is entirely connected to your circumstance. And so what Satan believes is that the only reason that Job is living a moral life, the only reason that Job is the way that he is, is because his circumstances are what they are. When God says, you know, have you considered my servant Job, how blameless and upright he is, Satan kind of answers back, like, well, of course he's blameless and upright. You've given him everything. He has all this land. He has all this livestock. He has a family that loves him. Like, you literally set him up with the leave it to beaver life. Of course Job is going to always serve you. And that's where, the, the, that's where the, the tension of the book lies, is that Satan believes that if, if you could rip away Job's perfect life, then Job would hate God. And so eventually this happens, right? Satan is allowed to, to really take away almost everything from Job. He has servant after servant come up to him and say, you know, all of your camels were taken by raiders. All of your donkeys were taken by raiders. Um, and as if that wasn't enough, uh, he has another servant say that all of your children were inside one of the houses of, of, of the brother. And a great storm came and it knocked down the house and all of your children were killed. And I think that one of the... Um, One of the great mistakes that we make when we read the Bible today is we kind of just gloss over things because we know how it ends. Um, But this would be the equivalent today of getting, of losing your life savings, getting laid off from your job, driving home, and finding out that your house burned down and your whole family was inside. That, That is what is happening to Job right now. And eventually, it doesn't even stop there. Um, Satan then attacks Job's body with with God's permission, and he gets all of these sores all over his body. And and they're so painful that Job actually breaks pots, and he takes shards of pottery, and he just scrapes at his arm to relieve uh, the pain and the irritation that all of this, that this skin disease is calling him. And it's at this moment that Job's wife utters probably her most famous line from the book, which is a bummer that this is what she's remembered for, but she tells Job just to curse God and die. And I think that Job's wife gets a bit of a bad rap um, because if you've ever, if you've ever um, walked with people through intense trauma, their mind's not right. Like, I don't think this is like necessarily a characteristic of, of who Job's wife was, but really she's, just in, she's experienced this incredible loss, and I don't think what she's saying here is, is really hatred for God. I think it's more along the lines of saying, you know, God, look, look around, Job. Like, God cursed us. Just curse him back, and, and then we can die, and we can be done with it. 
It's, it's an intense grief that he's walking through. And then the story begins to, to pick up a little bit. Eliphaz, Bildad, and, uh, and Zophar are three of Job's friends, and they, they arrive and they come to, to give him comfort. And again, speaking of, you know, Job's wife gets a bad rap. I think Job's friends get a bad rap a little bit too because from, from, all, from what we can see, their intention really was to, to offer Job comfort. Um, they come and it says that they sat with Job for a week in silence. So as Job is just kind of still in shock over everything that's happening, as I'm sure he's weeping, um, the Bible says he's in sackcloth, he's, he's, just, he's mourning, and his friends come and they don't do anything for a week. They just sit with him and they, they experience grief with him. But I think what, what happens is they, they, they try to give him um, tough love from their perspective. And then we see that that's where most of the problems of their conversations come. Job is a book of 42 chapters, and 29 of them are made up of this one section where it's Job and then his three friends going back and forth in poetic conversations about what's been happening. And Job begins all these conversations with um, a poem basically lamenting the day of his birth. He's saying that, you know, God, if, if, if this pain that I'm experiencing now is all that there was going to be, then it, it would have been better if you just let me die in childbirth if I never would have li- lived instead of letting me, you know, grow up, become a man, and then experience this. It would have been better if you just let me die. And it's after this that Eliphaz is the first to speak, and he, and he starts off really respectful, but then you'll see his tone shift, <coughs> which I think is important for us to be able to, ke- to pick up on. He says, Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. And Eliphaz starts off very complimentary of Job. He's saying, you know, Job, you have helped people through different circumstances. Your wisdom has helped people. And then you see his tone begin to shift. And he says, but now that it has come to you, you're growing impatient with the suffering of God. And, and what, jo- what Eliphaz is revealing here is that he too believes the lie of the book. Whereas Satan believed that the only reason Job was moral and upright is because of his circumstances, Eliphaz believes that the only reason Job's circumstances could have changed is because he was not moral and upright. He believes that they're entirely connected. And this kicks off a, a long series of, of cycles where, you know, Job will answer one friend and then another friend answers and then Job answers them and then another friend answers and it goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter all the way until almost the very end of the book. And, and, and you can kind of hear what's happening because it, the, the tone starts off as Eliphaz is saying, Job, we know that this suffering would not have happened to you unless you had some secret sin. And Job is like, guys, I don't even know what this sin that you're talking about could have been. And as the conversation goes on, it gets more and more heated until eventually you have the friends just straight up accusing Job of, you're a liar. We know exactly what you did. We, don't, we, may, we may not know what it is, but we know that there's some type of sin. And Job is equally coming back at them and saying, I promise you there is absolutely nothing in my life that would deserve this. But his friends, they just, they know that that can't 
be true. Even though they're mistaken in their own philosophy of how life or their own theology, the way that they view God, they know that Job's circumstances could never be bad unless Job himself was actively doing evil. And Job eventually gets exasperated and he he exclaims, what miserable comforters you are, or to bring that into modern English, um, you're supposed to be my friends. And, And Job is looking at his friends who were supposed to bring him comfort and he's finally just done with them and he's saying, I, I, There's nothing in my life that should have brought this to me. And then eventually we see Job's frustrations aren't just with his friends, but they're actually with God. And in Job 31, it says, Job himself says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. And when he's talking about the adversary, he's not referring to the Satan. What he's referring to is, is God himself. It's an assumption that Job and all of his friends operate under the entire book, but at no point do they ever doubt um, that God is in control, which is right of them. God is in control. These things are happening because God is allowing them to happen. But Job is using the, the language of, of a lawsuit. He's saying, I have, I have quarrel with God. Come down and answer me so that we can have an understanding with each other. Job is demanding that God answer him. And it's at this point that we're introduced to another character who's really had enough. See, while Job is saying that I've, I, you know, I've lived my life the way that I should live it, I'm upright, I've, I've never neglected sacrifices, I've been doing all of these things, and he looks into the face of God and he says, like, you're, you're wrong for allowing this to happen. What you're letting happen to me is wrong. And then another character named Elihu finally just has enough. And in Job 32, he says this, Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu just goes completely scorched earth on every character, human character, that we've met so far in the story. And he turns to Job's three friends and he says, you know, how dare you accuse your friend with absolutely no proof of having some deep and unrepentant sin in his life. And you can kind of hear Job in the background saying, thank you, finally, someone. And then Elihu whips around and talks to Job and he says, and you, how dare you spend all of this time defending your honor and not spend a sentence defending God's? All of Job's arguments when you're reading through are that he was righteous and that God was either mistaken or actively attacking him. And this goes on for for quite a long time. Elihu's very long-winded. He likes to just kind of rip into everyone. Um, And eventually God himself gets involved. Now, when I was a kid, um, I, I was, I still am, uh, what my parents probably lovingly refer to as a, as a smart aleck. And I remember a lot of conversations 
um, with my dad about how I shouldn't be as sarcastic as I am because it's going to be hard to keep friendships and people don't want to be around someone who's sarcastic all the time. And the truth of that is that he was probably right. But there is a time for sarcasm. And in the final chapters of Job, God himself just gives a, a, a master class on how to ask rhetorical questions. So after Elihu is finished just kind of ripping into everyone, it says this in Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Every time I read that line, I think of Braveheart with the guy who says, who is this who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? That has nothing to do with this message, but... I just, I think of Edward the Longshanks. So there you go. But in verse three, getting back to Sirius, he says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Skipping ahead to verse 16, it says, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And this goes on for for quite a while of, of God just kind of going after Job, going after Job, and eventually... It says that Job actually puts his hands over his mouth and he repents and he says, I I will say no more. I recognize that I'm in the wrong. And in one of my favorite passages of the Bible, God just kind of picks up Job and after he says that, looks at him and says, no, we're not done yet. And then he goes in for like a whole other chapter of just like continuing to go after Job with all of these questions. And it's interesting, the, the, the tone that God takes, the, the, uh, one of the opening lines of the whole thing is, dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. To bring that into modern English, it's basically, put on your big boy pants, we're about to have a discussion about this. And there's a couple important things to keep in mind about God's answer to Job. Number one, he never once tells Job why. What, what Job has been asking through the entire book is an answer to why his suffering has happened. We as the audience or the readers know it, but God never once tells Job why. And he could have easily said, you know, Job, the reason that you're suffering is to prove that your righteousness is not just because I give you things, but your righteousness is because of your character. Or he could say, Job, the reason you're suffering is to bring glory to me and, and let, let people worship me the, even more the way that I deserve. Or he could say, Job, the reason you're suffering is because this story will be written down and millions of people will be able to read it one day and be filled with hope reading your story when they themselves are going through incredibly traumatic moments. But God doesn't say any of that. We as the reader know why Job is suffering. But he doesn't reveal any of that to Job. All of the answers that God gives Job are questions of perspective. And what he's realizing is because Job himself believes the lie. Job himself believes that he doesn't deserve to suffer the way he did because he was moral and upright. They all act on it in different ways, but at the end of the day, Job, Job's friends, and Satan all believe the same thing. 
They believe that morality is entirely connected to circumstance. And, and what God does is, again, bringing it into modern English, is saying, Job, since you know so much about how I should govern, tell, tell me, where were you when I commanded the universe to exist and it obeyed me? Where, where were you when I took dust from the earth and I made man? Where were you when I opened the floodgates and flooded the entire earth and only one family survived? Where were you? He's going through all of these things and, and he's using this poetic language of where were you when I built the cornerstone of the earth, when I opened the gates and filled the seas? And he, he goes on and talks about, it, it's, it's one of the most interesting things, but he's like, ah, oh, think about the horse. The horse is awesome. And it's kind of like, God, why are you talking about horses right now? But he's like, the horse is amazing. And then he talks about the Leviathan, which is like probably not a dinosaur, but if you want to believe that, that's fine with me too. He's talking about all these great creatures, these great creations that he has made, and ultimately what he's doing is he's reminding Job of what his perspective is. He's reminding Job that his perspective is incredibly small. And I think the answer to those of us who are going through suffering, and this is certainly a year for suffering, is to keep the right perspective. That's ultimately the answer that God has for Job. And, and we have the advantage of not just having the book of Job, but we have the Gospels, we have Jesus, we have the New Testament with, through which we can kind of interpret everything. And so here's, here's two main perspectives I think that are important for us to keep in mind as Christians. Number one, and this is probably the hardest to hear, so we'll start with that. Um, we don't deserve anything. And I, I think we throw around the word deserve a lot, you know, like I deserve, you know, whatever it is af- afterwards. But we need to remember that every good thing, every joy, every happiness is a gift from God that should remind us of God's incredible love and mercy and point our affections back to him. The, the, the Bible is, is very clear in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Or in other words, what we deserve for our, for our sin, what we deserve for our fallen nature is is ultimately death and hell. And I think that, that one of the reasons that Job is so unhappy is that he doesn't view his perfect life as a, as a gift. He views it as something that he's earned. So when it gets taken away from him, he's, he doesn't view it as this gift from God that God then takes away. He views it as this thing that he deserves that has been taken away. The second thing to keep in mind is that our ultimate hope is in eternal relationship with God. As as Christians, we know that our hope is not in what we can do, but rather it's in what Christ has already done. Our hope is in the fact that, that Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we can never live, that he died the death that we deserve to die, and that because of his death and resurrection, we can have a relationship with him. Our hope is through... Our hope through every pain is that when we rest in God's love and grace, everything will one day be made whole. Maybe not on this side of eternity, but one day. God promises to wipe away every tear. If you haven't read Revelation 21, read it. It's a a beautiful chapter. And when we rest in the beauty of full relationship with God, all of the pain that this world could throw at us will seem like faint memories in the distance. When When we have our perspective If our perspective is just what's here right now, then every loss is the end of the world. If our perspective is just what's happening right here, right now, 
every setback is the end, right? But if we keep the perspective of one day we'll be in perfect relationship with God, one day we'll be in the new heaven and the new earth, that is our ultimate hope, and when we look back at our life on earth, all of these things that right now are just crushing. I don't want to minimal, I don't want to minimalize them either. Like loss is painful, death is painful, suffering is painful. So many of us this year have been going through a lot and we've lost loved ones and we've had to be isolated and we've had to just completely change our lives. We've lost jobs, money's tight. All all of these different things. I don't want to minimize any of that. But one day on the other side of eternity when we're with God in perfect relationship, we'll look back at these and they won't be these incredibly painful life-ending moments, but rather they'll just be memories. And that's the perspective that we get to have as Christians. And Brett can go ahead and come up and play and as we wrap up here today. I do want to finish the book of Job because it doesn't end on the down note of God just kind of ripping him up, but it does end on a hopeful note. And it says, oh, Brett, that's, that's really nice. Thank you. After God's admittedly harsh treatment of Job, his tone begins to shift. He rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and he restores Job's wealth. New children are born to him, and he, he kind of gets his perfect life back. So Job does ultimately get vindication because God does tell his friends, like, no, there wasn't a reason Job was suffering as far as, like, there was no great unrepentant sin in his life. It's something else, and he sends them away. And then Job has his life again. But I, I like to think, um, and the Bible's not explicit with this, but I, I like to think that Job views his life a little bit differently this time. I, I think he doesn't view it as something that he's earned, but rather he views it as the gift from God that it truly is. And this might be... Um, The last line of Job might be my favorite last line of any book of the Bible, but it says in in Job 42, 17, and Job died an old man and full of days. Um, Or I guess to keep it with the fairy tale team at the very start, you could translate that as, and he lived happily ever after. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much today for the truth of your word. I thank you for the the reminders that you give us to keep a, a pers- to keep your perspective. And I pray that as, as we suffer, as we go through trauma, as we go through just the pain of life, that we would always be able to remember that our ultimate hope isn't in who we are. Our ultimate hope isn't in what we've done, but our hope is in what you have already accomplished in the relationship that we have with you. I pray that in the midst of the most terrible things that we all go through, that, you're, that you would remind us of your salvation, that you would remind us of your love, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the South Coast Christian Podcast. We appreciate those who give on a regular basis to South Coast because through your giving, we are able to provide these resources. For more information about South Coast, including service times and ways to give, please visit southcoastchristian.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast. Thanks again, and may this week be filled with new opportunities where you can receive and share God's love.